Life beats us down sometimes. And when those times come into our lives, we have a choice to make. We can choose to to keep our eyes fixed on what's bringing us down, or we can fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, there are consequences for whichever choice we make. When we choose to fix our eyes on the things bringing us down, the things causing fear, stress, and anxiety, they typically bring us down and cause more fear, more stress, more anxiety. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Bible says it brings peace into our heart. Fixing our eyes on Jesus in the midst of a troubling, trying, fearful, anxious time is a a huge portion of the point of the book of Revelation. Revelation reminds us of the greatness of Jesus. Revelation reminds us of the hope He gives us. Revelation, it just continually holds Jesus out for us and says, look to Him. And then encourages us to respond to the trials, the difficulties, and the anxieties of life in light of the fact of who Jesus is and what He has done. We're going to look today at Revelation chapter 1. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn your Bible. Revelation 1 should be on page 949 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Now I am going to read the whole chapter, and we're going to look at the whole chapter in 90 minutes or less. Revelation 1 and 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show His servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the times at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was. And which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are on, which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with the clouds. And every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, saith the Lord. Which is, which was, and which is to come. The Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. And in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ was on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a trumpet. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And behold, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet likened to fine brass as if it burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet dead. And he laid his hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. The seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. 
The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The title of the message this morning is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire to understand your word, to take it to heart, to let it bring change into our lives. Father, right now there is an awful lot going on in so many lives. So much stress, so much anxiety, so much fear. We live in a culture oh, that is constantly bombarding us with fearful sounds and fearful news and fearful thoughts and worry about this and fear about that and be afraid of that and hunker down over this. And the more we look at that, the more anxious we feel. The more we Google that, the more afraid we are. Father, we're not going to find any answers on Google. We're not going to find any answers on Facebook or Twitter. We're not going to find any answers, Lord, anywhere except in Jesus Christ. The one who has glory and dominion forever. Father, when we talk about the idea of Jesus having glory and dominion forever, we know that. We know He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Father, we've heard that a million times. We've probably sang it dozens of times in various songs. But Lord, the time right now is a time for us to go beyond knowing it in our heads to believing it in our hearts. This is not the time for the church of Jesus Christ to cower in fear. This is not the time for disciples of Jesus to be fear mongers, to be a people who are running around like chicken little crying, the sky is falling. Now is the time for disciples of Jesus to boldly stand, boldly declare the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. To live with absolute confidence regardless of who our president is or what's going on in our government. To not let the news stories cause us to stay awake at night, but to sleep so soundly, so peacefully. Because our God rules and our God reigns and His Son is coming and He's coming for us. Take what we study in this lesson and let it be a foundation of our lives to remind us of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And let us give Him the unwavering devotion He alone deserves. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I would speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. Nothing more, nothing less. Just what You want. Have Your way in all of our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 1, the revelation... Of Jesus Christ. Revelation does give us the unveiling of how the end of all things comes about. But it is primarily about Jesus. All scripture is ultimately about Jesus. And Revelation is no different. Revelation 1 is a picture of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. It reaffirms to us his authority and his power to do everything else It is described, he is described as doing throughout the rest, the book of Revelation. Revelation reveals Jesus to us as the one who is worthy of unwavering devotion. This is our our main thought for today. The revealed Christ is worthy of unwavering devotion. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through Revelation 1 very, very quickly. To see why he is worthy of unwavering devotion. To see how he is revealed to us in this way. And then we'll look quickly at two ways to respond with unwavering devotion. Now, I could have taken this into several weeks. The description of Jesus. But all the descriptions we're going to see of Jesus in chapter 1 are fleshed out in other places in the book of Revelation. So... We can cover it quickly to get them thought, those thoughts in our minds and then we'll see the fuller picture of what those things mean as time goes on. So, revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. But Jesus being the faithful witness means He can be depended on and He can be trusted in what He says. Now, this is important. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him and which he gave to John. So Jesus, as the faithful witness, is revealing to us 
what we are supposed to know. He is faithful in what he says. What he has revealed in Revelation is right and it is true. This is going to be important as we move on. Right? To understand everything we see, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how challenging it might be, no matter how much it would go against our preconceived notions, Jesus is the faithful witness who has revealed it and he is right and we are wrong, if that's where the case may be. Jesus is also the, the first begotten of the dead. Now the phrase first begotten of the dead has a dual meaning. The first is obvious. Jesus rose again. Right? While Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he did not stay dead. He is not a dead religious leader that we look back on. He is a risen Savior we look forward to. The second meaning is he is the first who rose from the dead, but he is not the last. We look with hope toward the future. Our Savior died and he rose again. And because he rose again, all who died believing in him will also rise from the dead at some point in the future. And he is the prince of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the ruler over all the rulers of the earth. Now this does not mean every ruler who has ever existed or ever will exist has done exactly what Jesus wanted or will do exactly what Jesus wanted. They haven't and they won't. But what it does mean is every ruler who has ever existed or every world leader who ever will exist ultimately is accountable to Jesus. And the day will come when they stand before Him in judgment. Now this is something that brought this to my mind. was when, uh, when Sarah and I went to Bulgaria in 2019. We went to where the Bulgarian capital was, I guess it had been at one point, to the castle where the king lived. And it was up on a mountain. And it was this, almost the highest point on the mountain. And it was there so the king could sit on his mountain and he could look out over the people he ruled. He was above them and ruled over them. And there was only one thing in all of the city that was a higher, that was up elevated higher than the castle. And that was the chapel. So every time the king looked at the church, he would be reminded that though he ruled over all the people, there was still one who ruled over him. It's the idea here. No matter what nations... Leaders rule over, there is still one who ruled over them. Unto him that, that loved us. The love Jesus has for sinful humanity has to be a central thought in our minds. This is not something to minimize. This is not something to forget, especially in the midst of suffering. Jesus' love for sinful humanity will be especially important when we begin to look at the judgments he unleashes in Revelation. Now, I don't have time for this, but it is judgments he unleashes. When we get there, we're going to see Jesus is the one who breaks the seals and unleashes the judgment. The Bible speaks of it as the wrath of the Lamb being poured out. Jesus unleashes the judgments. And so we can wonder, where is the love of Christ in the midst of these awful judgments on sinful humanity? Well, that leads to the next point. Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The cross is and will always be central to the person and to the love of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of his love for sinful humanity. And though the cross offers a washing from sin, it offers forgiveness from the judgment to come. It is one that must be chosen. Jesus will wash all who come to him from their sin in his own blood. He will cause all who, for, who come to him to be forgiven and to be spared from the judgment to come. Jesus, in essence, he, he went through judgment. He took suffering so we wouldn't have to. But those who face the judgment in the book of Revelation. They are people who have rejected the salvation. They are people who said, I, I don't want anything to do with the love of Jesus Christ. I don't need to be washed from my sins in his own blood. These are not innocent people who are just in the wrong place 
at the wrong time. These are deeply rebellious sinners who say no to Jesus. And in fact, as we get deeper into the judgments being poured out, there comes a point where they realize that this is the judgment of God coming upon them for their sin. Do you know what they do at that point? Do they repent and cry out for mercy? They do not. Instead, they shake their fist at God and they curse Him in the face of His judgment. The wrath and the judgment of God will be poured out upon the earth, but no one actually has to endure it because... Jesus has loved us. He has died for our sins and he has made a way for us to be spared from the wrath to come. We can escape the judgment. And it is a this escape is one those who suffer this wrath have refused to take. It isn't that Jesus hasn't loved them well. It's that they have rejected that love and the salvation he offers. It says in verse 6 that he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now by kings and priests, I think it means a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom under the rule of the king where all citizens are priests unto God. Now this is a fulfillment of Exodus 19 and 6. God was always intended on making all people priests unto him. Now, part of what this means is all born-again believers have equal access to God. Billy Graham did not have access to God the rest of us do not have. If, by chance, Billy Graham had a better relationship with God than you or I do, it's not because he had a better access to God, it's because he took advantage of the access that was there better than we did. All of us are kings and priests unto God. We are all have access to come to Him, to worship Him, to pray to Him, to know Him, to serve Him. This is one of the great privileges each and every believer in Jesus Christ has. He also has dominion, glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, the phrase John uses, glory and dominion forever and ever, is significant because it testifies to the rule and the reign of Jesus. Jesus rules and reigns over all, including all earthly powers. This is a central theme in the book of Revelation. Jesus doesn't just rule in the heavenlies somewhere in a way that is disconnected from reality. Jesus rules the kingdoms of the earth as well. Now, Something that is significant, especially in light of of our day and the way things are going on in our culture. In Revelation, every earthly kingdom and every earthly leader are the enemies of Christ and of his people. Every earthly kingdom and every earthly leader swears allegiance to the Antichrist. They war against Jesus. They take part in hunting out uh, the tribulation saints and slaughtering them in the name of the Antichrist. Every earthly government and every earthly leader is the enemy of Christ when we get to the book of Revelation. And though they war against Him, and though they fight against Him, they are all ultimately defeated and he rules over them with a rod of iron. Jesus alone deserves glory and dominion or glory because Jesus alone has true dominion. World governments and world leaders have an appearance of of glory, of pomp and circumstance, but it's just a facade. It's not real. Jesus reigns over them as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. Moreover, their dominion is temporal. Just for a blink of an eye. But his glory and his dominion is forever. Verse 7. Jesus is coming. Behold, he cometh with the clouds. What a thought. Jesus is coming. I think the idea of him coming with the clouds is an allusion 
to the Gospels where it talks about Jesus coming in the clouds with great glory. And every eye shall see him. Which every eye shall see him. That's amazing. We'll see. We didn't see him go up, but we will see him come down. But notice what will happen with many. They will wail because of him. Now, I don't think the image here is that disciples of Jesus are going to well when we see Jesus. Because this isn't a well of, woo, glory, joy. This is more the well of fear and terror. So imagine, if you will, you've lived your life rejecting Jesus. You've rebelled against the idea of absolute truth and a Savior who came. You have even mocked the idea that people would believe a book like this and that someone died for the sins of others and that took away our sins. And then one day, one day after years of this rebellion, after years of mocking, after years of rejection, the eastern sky splits, the archangels blow the trumpet, and there is Jesus in clouds of great glory. And you realize He was real. He was true. And judgment is coming. And it's coming for you. How would you respond in that moment? Well, probably you would wail. The reality and the weight of the judgment, their judgment, it will cause them to, to wail in terror. Verse 8 Jesus speaks for the first time in the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. It says this multiple times throughout the book of Revelation. Reminds us Jesus was around in the beginning. And it reminds us Jesus will be around after the last Amen. Before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there. Revelation ends with, even so come Lord Jesus, amen. He'll still be there. He is eternal. He is equal with God the Father. It says, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come. Now, look at verse 4. It's talking about God the Father. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come. It is not uncommon in Revelation to see God described, God the Father described in one way in one passage and Jesus described in the same way in another passage. It is a a constant reminder throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus was not merely a good teacher. Jesus was not merely a good man. Jesus was not merely a prophet. Jesus was and is God, the eternal God. And then Jesus is almighty in verse eight. Again, the the idea behind Almighty is Jesus possesses absolute sovereignty over this life and over the life to come. Jesus has all power and all authority and can do all things. Now, besides ruling over the, the princes of the world, it also means Jesus has the authority and the power to bring to pass every vision, every revelation, every prophecy we see in this book. And no one can stop him. Again, a key thrust. Jesus wins. And no one can win against Him. Now jump down to verse 11. Jesus again says He is the Alpha and the Omega. Um, And He tells John to write down and to send it to the seven churches. What John is writing is what Jesus wants revealed to us. Verse 12 and 13, John turns And he sees Jesus walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Uh, The seven candlesticks, we find out later, are the seven churches. Uh, And we don't have time to get into that today. We'll see this next week when we get into the seven letters. But just a quick picture. Seven letters, or the seven candlesticks, are the seven churches. And it talks about Jesus walking in the midst of them. It's just a picture of Jesus caring about His church. He's personally involved in His church, our church. He's here. He's walking among us. He is with us. What we do in the middle of the panhandle of Oklahoma, it matters because Jesus walks in the midst of us. Then in verse 13 through 18, we were given an an almost rapid fire series of descriptions of Jesus. 
almost all of them are allusions from the Old Testament. Again, we don't have time to go in depth in any of them because we will see them in later chapters. Um, so I'll just talk about it quickly. One, lock into the Son of Man in verse 13. This is a the Old and a New Testament reference. In the Old Testament, Daniel 7 and 13, where it pictures the, the Messiah coming to set up a, a kingdom and to rule over the nations. In the New Testament, the most common way Jesus refers to himself is as the Son of Man. This is a, a dual reminder. Jesus is one. He is the Old Testament he is what the Old Testament talked about. He's the fulfillment. But it's also a reminder that the Jesus we're seeing in Revelation, this is the Jesus we met in the Gospels. It's the same cat, same guy. Nothing has changed in who he is or what he's like. Uh, it also says he is clothed with a garment down to his foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle, a long robe with a golden sash. Probably this refers to Daniel's vision of a heavenly high priest in Daniel 10 and 5. Jesus is our heavenly high priest who has given his blood for our sakes to give us access to God and ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool and as white as snow. This is a reference to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and 9. In Daniel, the Ancient of Days is God who sits on His throne. This again is a reminder. Jesus is not something new. He is not a new creation. He is not a new revelation. He is the Ancient of Days who has always been and has always existed. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, picture from Daniel chapter 6, 10, chapter 10 verse 6. Now, Revelation itself gives us two pictures with the ideas of flames like fire. The first in Revelation 2.18 speaks of the omniscience of Jesus. He, he sees what the church has done. He knows what they've done in secret. He is aware of what's gone on in their hearts. He sees the depths of the human heart. All the things we would like to hide. All the things we might have done in secret, Jesus sees. And He's aware of. And then in Revelation 19... I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Revelation 19 and 12. The eyes like a flame of fire denote the fierceness of heaven's warrior. The conquering Christ who comes to execute judgment on God's enemies. Feet like fine brass. Verse 15. This also harkens back to Daniel 10 and 6. The picture of brass burned in a furnace is of brass heated until it's in a molten state with all of its purity and all of its glory. In Daniel 2 and 18, feet like brass picture heaven's warrior coming to execute judgment on false teachers and their disciples. Again, a massive focus we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation is false teaching is a significant issue to Jesus. People who go out and say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not said, Jesus is not okay with that. These people are brought into judgment and death and destruction. So, before we listen to a prophet who would say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord told me this was going to happen. We better understand how Jesus feels about those who say such things and they come not to pass. It, it says in verse 15, his voice was as the sound of many waters. It's an allusion to Ezekiel 43 and 2. And it speaks of the majesty and the authority of Jesus' voice. So imagine the sound that, that Niagara Falls makes. But imagine it wasn't just a roar, it was words. How would that feel to hear something like that? That's sort of what this picture is going for. Now, take what we see in Revelation 1 about the voice of Jesus. It, it sounds like a trumpet in verse 10. It's like many waters in verse 15. It's like a, a sharp two-edged sword in verse 16. These powerful descriptions of Jesus' voice, they communicate His authority which must be obeyed. And the idea of a two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is the two edges of the message He brings. The message of salvation and the message of judgment. Right? Jesus preaches a message of turn to Me and be saved. Come to Me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And He offers that. He holds that out. He is salvation. And He says, come to Me. But there's also the message of judgment. You will not come to me and you will die in your sins because of this. 
Jesus not only speaks the message of salvation, he declares final judgment and he is the one who executes it. So as we think about the voice of Jesus in this passage, the trumpet, the roar, and the message, we must pay the more careful heed to the things we have heard and will hear from him. Because there are a myriad of other voices calling for our attention, even now. And the message of Jesus must drown out the message of the world. Are we listening to Jesus and his message of salvation? Or are we listening to the siren songs of the enemies of Jesus? And are we headed for judgment? We must give the more earnest heed. Verse 16. It says at the end, And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. This pictures Jesus in, in all of his glory. Sort of what we see in the transfiguration where Jesus shines. Or what Paul talked about when he said Jesus dwelt in, in light which no man can approach. But the wording pictures Jesus so glorious, it's like looking full strength into the sun. It says, Jesus says in verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. The final characteristic of Jesus given in this passage is him being the ultimate victor over death. Now, something interesting about death and the grave in the book of Revelation is later on they are going to be personified as demonic forces. So Jesus, what we see from this, he won. He not only has the keys and the power over physical death, but he has keys and power over the spiritual forces that would bring death into our world. He has absolute control over life and death and all demonic forces. Keys in Jewish thought Typified authority. Jesus has authority, all authority. And therefore he controls all the issues of life and death. And we can be sure of this because he died. And then he himself conquered death by rising to live forever and ever. This is the revealed Christ from Revelation 1. How do we respond to the revealed Christ? Well, we respond with unwavering devotion. What does unwavering devotion look like? Revelation chapter 1 gives us two, two ways. One is proclaim Jesus faithfully. Look at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle which is called Patmos for the word of God. And for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I like the first part. John writes as our brother. And as our companion. John writes to suffering Christians. Encouraging them to persevere because of the greatness and the glory of Christ. Not as one who's living an easy life. Not as one who's in an ivory tower or in a great mansion with servants to come to him. But no, as an exile. Exiled himself, suffered himself because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, it is significant in the book of Revelation and is used in a couple of other places. In Revelation 6, 9, there are martyrs under the altar. And they've been martyred, they've been murdered because of the, the word of God and the testimony which they held. Which, the te which was the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 20 and 4, they are beheaded. And they are beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And the key idea in Revelation is it can be, and it eventually will be, costly to be committed to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Something interesting. 
The word translated as witness in the New Testament, and I meant to put up on the screen for God, is M-A-R-T-Y-R-I-A, martyria, which is where our English word martyr comes from. However, until the second or third century, martyr didn't mean death as we think of it, martyrdom. Instead, martyr just meant witness. Why the change? So many disciples of Jesus were being killed for being witnesses for Jesus. The word took on the connotation of death. To be a witness for Jesus was to put yourself in a place where you would likely die for Jesus. A witness for Jesus is committed to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this commitment is dangerous and it is costly. And it's going to become increasingly more dangerous and increasingly more costly. Why? Well, one, commitment to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ leads us to proclaim it. Think about it. John wasn't banished to the Isle of Patmos because he sat at his house and read his Bible and believed it really strongly. The martyrs weren't killed because they read their Bibles and they believed it really strongly. No, John was exiled because he believed the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ so strongly, he went out and he proclaimed it to others knowing they would not like it. The martyrs were killed because they believed the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ so strongly they proclaimed it to others who hated them for it to the point of killing them. The world does not care if we stay at home and read the Word of God and believe it really strongly. In fact, they honestly constantly encourage us to do that very thing. Read it. Believe it. But keep it to yourself. The world does not care how strongly we believe it so long as we don't proclaim it. And the moment we proclaim it, that's where the problems start. If we are committed to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ... We cannot help but proclaim it. And a willingness to proclaim it will be costly. And it will be dangerous as time goes on. Secondly, commitment to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ supersedes all other commitments and all other agendas. Throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see the commitment. See, commitment to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ be at odds with other commitments and other agendas. And every time this happens, there is a choice that must be made by the people. Will they in that moment, will they submit the testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God to these other agendas, these other commitments? Or, or will, they, will they submit these other commitments and these other agendas to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ? Two things to know about that. In every instance, Jesus says, choose his word and his testimony. In every instance, he says, you submit all other commitments and all other agendas to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even though it means faithfulness unto death for you. And every time they choose to submit the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, to other commitments and other agendas. They are considered to be unfaithful to Jesus. And it costs them dearly. They are judged by Jesus for making that decision. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is unpopular now. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is at odds with many other commitments and agendas now. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is not going to lighten up or change in any way as the days go on. Instead, as our world gets further away from Jesus, it is going to be more at odds with other commitments, more at odds with other agendas. 
And it is going to be more dangerous, more costly for us to believe it so much we proclaim it. Since this is the case, what we must have is patience, he says. Patience there could be endurance or perseverance. Disciples of Jesus of every generation have had to have patience and endurance because being a disciple of Jesus, it's not about a decision we made at some point in the past that has no bearing on our day-to-day life now. Instead, being a disciple of Jesus is about daily choosing, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus. To do this daily, especially in the sight, in the in the, in the presence of opposition and persecution requires patience, perseverance, and endurance, which Jesus said we had to have to experience final salvation. But he that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. What about those who don't endure to the end? What about those who cave to the pressure before the end? What about those who submit the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to other agendas and other commitments before the end? Why do we press on proclaiming Christ despite hardships we may face from proclaiming Christ? Because the revealed Christ is worthy of this kind of unwavering devotion. Secondly, you thought I was kidding when I said 90 minutes. Secondly, heed the Spirit Diligently. Verse 4 talks about the seven spirits which are before the throne. And the phrase seven spirits almost certainly refers back to Hebrews 11, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 11 and 2. Notice the seven ways the Spirit of the Lord is described. The Holy Spirit is described the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The idea of seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit seems to be the, the idea of the perfection of the spirit himself or of the fullness of the Holy Spirit resting upon the church of Jesus Christ and upon disciples of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go into all of those, but just think about what it says there. Can you see how we would need that in our day? Look, look particularly the last one, the fear of the Lord. The Bible warns us the fear of man brings a snare. Fear of the Lord frees us from that. I was thinking about John Knox, the reformer, the Scottish reformer. It was said of him, he feared men so little because he feared God so much. He was willing to offend people because he was unwilling to offend God. Can you see how the spirit, this fullness of the spirit, the spirit of the the fear of the Lord is needed in our day? Because the fear of man is a real thing. The fear of man is a great thing. That, that's what, and I don't have time for this, but that's what the news is. Right? That's what the news is always saying to us. Fear what Donald Trump will do to stay president. Fear what Joe Biden's going to do if he gets inaugurated. Fear the virus. Fear the vaccine. Fear wearing a mask and looking like a fool. Fear not wearing the mask and die. Fear! But if we fear God... We don't have to fear that stuff. We need this in our day. The church of Jesus Christ should not be cowering and fearing and fear mongering. God help us. We should be bold and unwavering in our stance for Christ. Let it burn down. We're here for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of courage the church of Jesus Christ needs in our day. And we'll need it even more as we move forward. Because whatever fear-mongering is going on now, it is not going to get better. It is just going to get worse. And if we fear man, it will absolutely destroy our devotion to Jesus. We will not be disciples of Jesus long if we fear men more than we fear Him. How many of us have let the fear of man keep us from proclaiming Christ? Because it would be awkward. Because they might not like it. If we've let the fear of man stop us in a relatively easy time, what will we do in a time when it's costly? 
physically costly, financially costly. We need the fullness of the Spirit to rest upon the church so we could have the spirit of the fear of the Lord. But we also need, look at what he says in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I find that to be an interesting phrase. It's repeated, Revelation 4, 2, 17, 3, 21, 10. According to what I've studied, it refers to a special intensity of spiritual awareness, causing or enabling disciples of Jesus to be especially receptive to the Holy Spirit. Now, as Free Will Baptists, we have often undervalued the role of the Holy Spirit, almost to the point of outright neglect. We have largely done this because we fear the crazies. You know who the crazies are. They're on the TV. They're on YouTube. They're on Twitter. They're on Facebook. They're everywhere. And we look at the crazies and we think, I don't want to be one of the crazies. I don't have anything to do with one of the crazies. And the crazies all say the Holy Spirit is what's leading them to be the crazy. So we neglect or we de-emphasize the Holy Spirit. We, we certainly, we don't say things like, well, I was in the Spirit yesterday. <laughs> we don't. And, and this, this minimizing of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is to our detriment. The Holy Spirit is one person of the Trinity. He's God. As such... The Bible gives us many exhortations concerning the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, have communion with the Spirit, know the Spirit, be taught by the Spirit, pray for the Spirit, not grieve the Spirit, and not quench the Spirit. I could go on and on, but you you get the idea. As disciples of Jesus, we should absolutely seek Times of intense spiritual awareness so we can be especially receptive to the Holy Spirit and what He might say. When we move next week into Revelation 2, for the next seven weeks, at some point, we're going to hear, He that has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We're exhorted to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There has always been a need for disciples of Jesus and the church of Jesus to hear what the Spirit is saying for the churches. But as we move forward into days that are uncomfortable, as days that are fearful, as days where we don't know what's coming, we need it even more. The more our culture moves away from Jesus, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, the more we need to heed the Spirit. The more we need to hear His voice. The more we need to be filled and empowered and walk and live and keep in step with and have communion with and know and be taught by and pray for and refuse to grieve and refuse to quench. We need it. We're desperate for it. Some would say, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this way. Saying we need to have an intense spiritual awareness so we can be especially receptive, it makes me uncomfortable. Maybe so. Maybe so. But the revealed Christ is greater than your comfort zone or mine. And He is worthy of us being called outside of our little circle of comfort out to the place where He wants to lead us, to work in us, to use us for His glory. Unwavering devotion to Jesus in part means proclaiming Jesus faithfully and heeding the Spirit diligently. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. It could be costly. People could misunderstand. But the revealed Christ is worth more than our friendships. He's worth more than our comfort. He's worth more than our jobs. He's worth more than anything. We can lose our friendships but have Jesus and we'll be fine in the big scheme of things. But if we keep our friendships and we lose Jesus, we have lost it all. So, if what we've looked at today, if this is the Word of God, God has revealed it. Jesus has had Paul or had John to write it down. If this is the faithful witness, the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, what do we need to do in response? 
It's odds that all of us are just like all out living this way are, are just non-existent. So what do we need to do? Maybe do we need to receive the revealed Christ. Maybe you've never made that personal decision where you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus and you cry out to Him to save you. He wants to wash you from his, your sins in His own blood. He has made this path available and that, and that is being held out to you now. Come to Me. So maybe the way you need to respond is to receive the revealed Christ. Or maybe we need to proclaim the revealed Christ. Maybe there is somebody we know we should be talking to. Someone we know we should have. We've had the opportunities, but we're afraid. The fear of man has become a snare that has kept us from having the uncomfortable conversation. And now is the time for us to say, I will proclaim Jesus. I will share Jesus with them. Or maybe it is to seek the Holy Spirit. Again, as free will Baptist, we, we, we don't seek the Spirit that Jesus in Luke 11 said to And he said, if we seek the Spirit, we're going to receive good from the Father. I've heard Free Will Baptists say, if you you start trying to seek the Holy Spirit in that way, you you open yourself up to deception and, and demons can get into your life. But Jesus specifically says that if we if we seek the Father for the Spirit, we're not going to receive a snake or a rock. God is not going to allow that to happen. If we're seeking the Spirit through Jesus in the way the Bible describes, how are we going to be deceived? Why are we more confident in Satan's ability to deceive than in God's ability to protect your God? Maybe we need to seek the Spirit to listen to what He's saying to us in these days. There is a way we all need to respond. Too much to stand.